Welcome back to Salty Talks, a podcast about sustainable aquaculture here in Maine. And it was an absolute pleasure to meet up with Barton Seaver, a renowned chef and author who is particularly passionate about sustainable seafood. Barton has a fascinating story of how his work evolved and sustainable seafood became such an integral part of who he is. I had a great time visiting with Barton here in the very picturesque South Freeport, Maine. As a chef, Barton's enthusiasm for seafood is contagious. His eyes light up as he delves into the amazing diversity of seafood, which I find incredibly exciting from both a culinary and environmental standpoint, which I can safely say I believe Barton does as well. Hey, I'm Barton Seaver. I'm a chef. I'm an author. Uh, more importantly, I'm a husband and a father. Live here in South Freeport, and life is really good. I live on a garlic farm. Oyster farmers drive past my house every day, and, you know, life is delicious here in Maine. It's the way life should be. And uh, this was a very specific evolution of my work. My wife is from Maine, and so I, I entirely borrow her legitimacy here in this place. We wanted to invest ourselves and our sons, our family, to root them within a place that we have long worked in our in our career to to sustain you know ultimately uh seafood sustainable seafood is the product of a community right and uh so we chose to literally root ourselves into that community barton's career and personal philosophy are closely tied to this concept of sustainability which as he mentions is something mainers seem to place such high value on In the realm of seafood, to me, sustainability is our commitment to harvest and culture organisms wisely, to protect marine habitats and ensure a lasting abundance for both our tables and for the oceans. Starting over two decades ago, Barton's approach to sustainable seafood was one of respect and responsibility towards marine ecosystems. However, it was the realization of seafood as a catalyst for change that I believe has shaped his perspective on sustainability. Seafood has always been just the most interesting ingredient category to me. Just as a chef, as a culinarian, it's far more interesting, right? Chicken, white or dark, beef, grill cut or braised cut, you know, or a grind cut. That's kind of where you are. But salmon, there's five wild species. There's all the different, you know, farmed Atlantic and the incredible diversity of culinary, you know, exploration that offers. There's Arctic char, there's steelhead trout, there's rainbow char, you know, and there's there's so many just facets to seafood just from a culinary standpoint. And that's just the, the salmon category right there. Let's talk about flaky white flesh fish, you know. Uh, it's just so interesting and diverse and uh, meaningful in a way that just coming up as a as a culinarian, seafood was the most interesting category for me to pursue an expertise in. And that led me to understanding, well, the best products come from the best producers, right? The best producers are ones that are focused on an an ecosystem approach, Uh, not only just to the quality of the product at hand, but also to the environment in in which they're working, to the culture and community and economy in which they are working, that are active participants in something bigger than themselves. And so this idea of just that connectedness of seafood kind of begat my understanding of sustainability of seafood. You know, if you are working within these systems, you are most likely working to sustain those systems, right? Uh, Because they matter to you. 
And so that idea that seafood was this catalyst to develop and to invest in and to become part of food systems that I wanted to be a part of, a sort of a world that I wanted to see, was really what drove my culinary career, but then also sort of the intellectual aspects of how I viewed food systems and my participation in them. When I first started out with sustainable seafood, though, this was 20 plus years ago, we were still very much in a cover your ass mentality around sustainability. It was, you know, do no harm approach, right? There wasn't much discourse or conversation or even allowance for conversations that seafood was actually this catalyst. Seafood was actually a product through which we could create systems. And so, so much of sustainability started off as just a bad human, bad, guilty, stop screwing it up. And my analysis and interest in sustainability grew past that. Yes, of course, it's our responsibility to reduce the impact we have on marine ecosystems. It's also our opportunity to maximize the impacts that they have upon us. And to me, the end result of sustainability is the endurance of thriving humans. And so if we measure our ability to thrive in our places in which we, that we love uh, as the end result of sustainability, we begin to see seafood really as this catalyst product that enables us to create, the, as I said earlier, to sort of create the change that we want to see. But it also takes sustainability away from being a cover your ass, you know, do no harm approach to really being this, this radical sort of process by which it's not just, hey, you know, humans don't screw up ecosystems. It's like, wow, maybe, you know, instead of getting people just to fix seafood, we can also use seafood to begin to fix people and to address climate change and economic outcomes, you know, positive economic outcomes and women's empowerment and all sorts of different issues that are so close to the surface with seafood uh, that it becomes a category driver for the change we want to see. I think that I share the sentiment with Barton thinking about, like he said, our ability to thrive as the end result of sustainability. And when I think about why I'm in this field, I think back to my childhood. I've always been drawn to nature and the outdoors growing up in Colorado. And I think this mindset comes from both interacting with these natural fragile legacies around me, but also from understanding early on that our food systems are so deeply connected to our ecosystems, which led me to be curious about our oceans as well. I wondered if Barton's intriguing childhood split between the bustling streets of Washington, D.C. and the tranquility of the Chesapeake Bay Area set the stage for his future career, and if his early experiences around the tide pools of the Chesapeake Bay perhaps planted the seeds for his lifelong fascination with seafood and the environment. I had a very dichotomous uh, childhood, so I was born and raised in downtown Washington, D.C. during the height of the crack epidemic. Uh, when D.C. was the murder capital of the world. It was a very interesting place and time to be growing up. I spent a lot of time outside because that was just my parents' babysitter was you know, kicking me out the front door. Uh, but yes, I also had, so I had a very urban upbringing, but I also had opportunity to spend some of my summers down in the Chesapeake Bay, tributary of the Patuxent River. Yeah, it was there that I just spent my days in the quest for food. You know, and I walked around with my Ewell Gibbons manual and just like wondered what delicious was underfoot or under wave. And that's where I sort of first got lost in a tide pool. And just in terms of the epic wonderment that tide pools uh, offer, 
And uh, that certainly colored a lot of my interest to this day. In addition to these early experiences, I would say that an essential part of Barton's love for seafood and sustainability is certainly tied to the state of Maine. He describes this interesting correlation between the state's history and the functioning of its democracy, explaining how the two uniquely shape Maine's food systems and, in particular, the aquaculture industry. One of the things that I love so much about the sort of crucible of aquaculture and fisheries that we have here in Maine is that in settler America, cod is our first heritage food. You know, we, we celebrate tomatoes and heirloom corn and all these things. And, you know, but like cod was our first heritage food. You know, it was, it was why Whitefoot stepped onto the shore initially. Uh, So the idea that both the, the ancient quote unquote history of America still is alive here in wild capture fisheries, but also that it represents this crucible of of, of development and evolution and technological prowess and just all that we're seeing with aquaculture is, is so compelling to me that, you know, we have our history and the future on display in sort of equal parts here. Something that I also have come to so appreciate about Maine is the functioning of our democracy here seems to just work a little bit better than elsewhere right now, it seems. Uh, And something that I think is so often lost in in conversations about food and food systems is that a food system is a function of democracy. It It is a function of the of the vision that people within that community have of themselves, have of their stewardship uh, of the land, have of their you know, sense of health and well-being, uh, a sense of their heritage, their pride and continuity in place, etc. So a food system being a function of democracy is an important vantage point, I think, to take when we begin to discuss what aquaculture is what it has been what it could be and how we can approach it in this very intentional way that says to a community you are engaged in this because this is you Uh, what do you want your place to look like what do you want our presence in your place to look like what do you want our economy to look like what are those civic social virtues and values that we can uh, expound upon and manifest through food systems. And unlike a lot of other places, some of the other functionaries of democracy are really at, at play in aquaculture. And when I mean functionary, I mean like the Portland Press Herald, you know, local news media is an exceedingly important part of democracy, is an exceedingly important part of a food system. Why? Because it is that town forum, that, that town hall by which ideas are shared and So I just think that Maine is so well set up to harness the power of community input uh, and to really be the progenitor of intentional aquaculture in ways that other communities elsewhere can then begin to see themselves and their values reflected in. Not all forms of aquaculture belong in all places. 
That must be a decision of that community. That community must be well informed in order to make that decision. And I think that process is playing out here in Maine in ways that are exceedingly important for the rest of the planet to take note of. In the year that I've lived here, I absolutely think Burren is on to something. The way in which Maine seems to have such intentionality with aquaculture, place-based values, and community pride are some of the key aspects that drew me to this state in the first place. Since he's been here for much longer than I have, I asked Barton if these qualities in regard to aquaculture are something he thinks are inherent to this place, or if he's seen growth and a shift in attitudes over the past decade. Perhaps hinting that if it's possible here, other areas can harness this idea of community, stewardship, and the importance of our food systems, as Barton says, being a function of democracy. So let's hear what he has to say about that. In the time that I've been in Maine, the 10 years my wife and I have been rooted here, I, I've absolutely seen the, the trajectory shift a little bit around aquaculture. And I think this is globally as well as the World Economic Forum and the UNFAO are now you know, majorly involved in this. You've got you know, mega health networks that are looking at seafood as you know, these very positive sort of flow throughs for, for positive outcomes uh, in various you know, health circumstances, et cetera. Just basically the conversation about seafood has been elevated in different ways so that people are receiving information through different headlines now. It's you know, headlines about seafood <laughs> really don't reflect the interest of a vast majority of people. Uh, but public health and economics and, uh, you know, diversity and climate change and DEI and all these other things. Yes. Okay. So there are these multiple access points for seafood information. But I also think that one of the things that's happened with, with aquaculture is that for so long, the, the contention was, you know, it's the nimbyism. It's the no in my backyard. And the problem with nimbyism is that it's so rarely countered by yimbyism. What is the yes in your backyard? What, you know, what, what am I, what are we giving people to say yes to? And that's what Maine has done so very well. I think, you know, not only do we have a 60 year history with net pen farming here, some of that, you know, with its contentions, of course, but bottom line is it's done pretty darn well. But now that we have these, you know, oyster leases, small scale, big scale, you know, air quotes on big scale there, because it's still very, very small in terms of total scale. But the bottom line is we now have something to say yes to. People are wearing Love Point Oyster t-shirts and hats, and it's cool to have oyster shell tattoos. And like, it's a cultural thing now. And so people, now they know what an oyster farmer looks like. They know that she drives a truck just like a lobsterman and that, you know, she takes her boat off from South Freeport just like anybody else does. And uh, they can see her getting up and going to work and putting in a hard day's work and having a really great product at the farmer's market at the end of the day to put to hold forth and, and to say with pride, this is of my making and this is of my love and effort. Like, oh, <laughs> Oh, oh, wait, and you're a daughter of the community who was born and raised here? Well, gosh, isn't this a great story? Like, yes, we've been trying to tell you that story for 20 years, but yes, like, yeah, you, we, we've given people something to say yes to. They see a mirror now in aquaculture that can ref that reflects their own values. 
that reflects their own desires about what they want their community to look like, that they want a son or a daughter to go off to college and then come back because there's hope in the water. There's opportunity here to do something really radically cool, right? So that's what's changed most is that there's this percolation, this fomenting of Yimby. <laughs> and then there's all these other civic and you know um, community virtues and values. So whether it's wastewater treatment and runoff, you know, from upstream non-point source pollution of nutrient cycles, whether it's, you know, climate change mitigation, whether it's uh, tidal surge mitigation, I mean, you name it, all of a sudden, all of these other positives now have a nucleus of a personal image around which they can actually add value to the to a meaningful conversation. Barton's mention of Yimbyism, or Yes in My Backyard, reminded me of the New Meadows River Co-op event last month and how this was a great community event where anyone could paddle, kayak, what have you, on the New Meadows to the farms out there and meet the farmers, hang out on work floats, and learn more about oyster farms while having this shared value and connection to our communities and our waters. This got me wondering if aquaculture and interacting with this practice in ways such as this could transform our relationship with our oceans from being a distant, unexplored territory to a more familiar space, akin to visiting an apple orchard to pick fruit and meet the farmers, or visiting a dairy farm to eat ice cream and see the cows that produced our food. And this is where the, the tight-knit community comes into play. Even if you don't eat oysters, but you've gone to church with Mr. and Mrs. Selinger for 40 years and their daughter is now growing oysters and you watched her grow up. It's like there's an immediacy of, of, of just affection there. And that is what Mainers, you know, as I think are maybe most unified by is an affection we share for this place. And now that we begin to see with that same affection, our presence on the water being seen as beautiful, uh, that we look out upon an oyster float and say with pride, I'm happy she's out there. Like that's, that's what's beginning to shift. You know, for so long we've looked at land and our presence there is beautiful. You know, we think of a farm as this glorious presence of humanity, right? The perfectly patterned rows of crops undulating into autumn splendor, setting sunlight on these hills and, you know, the, the picket fence and the farmhouse and the red barn and all of this scene, like, hot damn, like this is literally the thread by which, which the fabric of settler America was woven, right? But then we look out at the, at the sea, you know, and we gaze wistfully out at the wine dark sea thinking as though a fishery or a farm is somewhere, something that happens elsewhere, executed by someone other beyond the horizon of our attentions. And so we have this idea that land is beautiful for our presence and the sea is, is beautiful for our absence. And aquaculture begins to shift that narrative very subtly uh, with contention, you know, as we are quote unquote privatizing the commons uh, in ways that just putting a lobster pot down doesn't you know, in sort of our cultural capacity for thinking of this. Um, and so that idea that we are, we are slowly pioneering just the idea that people belong out there is like, whoa, like this is what we are fighting against. Like that level of misunderstanding or lack of understanding when it comes to aquaculture that we, you know, 
it's easy to just say, hey, my, my oyster is delicious. But the very nature of the presence of that oyster in the water is, uh, is something that we are able to build consensus around here in Maine better so than anywhere else. And that's why I think we really are sort of the bleeding edge of this, that we are not only just developing the technology and educating the students and creating these pathways and entry points, but we're also literally writing the cultural textbook. Barton's insights offer a captivating glimpse into the depth of aquaculture's impact. Beyond the flavor of the seafood, there's a broader, more profound story about Maine's relationship with its waters and its inhabitants. Here in Maine, we're not just cultivating oysters, we're cultivating a cultural understanding. As Barton said, we're in the process of writing a cultural textbook that future generations can refer to. This approach to aquaculture, set against the backdrop of a global sustainability narrative, truly showcases how our local efforts can shape and influence global perceptions. But to truly appreciate how far we've come, let's journey back to a time during Barton's budding chef career, a time when the conversations around sustainable seafood were few and far between. When I was coming up through the ranks uh, and I went to Culinary Institute of America and then taught there in the seafood program uh, for a couple of years after graduation, sustainable seafood was just becoming a topic of conversation. And uh, Carl Safina at the Blue Ocean Institute uh, was pumping out his initial wallet guide uh, that Monterey then did a sort of West Coast version. And so all of that was happening at the time that I was coming up. Uh, the idea of sustainable seafood is much older than that, of course, but in terms of just this functional mechanisms of it uh, that were widespread, it was just beginning to happen. But when I opened my restaurants, even my business partner, the first question he asked me is, wait, what's sustainable seafood? When I said, let's open a seafood restaurant. So yeah, we were still, we were very much in a, in a place where we needed to, before we even sold the dish, we had to sell the concept of, of just what it represented. Uh, and also a big part of that was selling the negatives. You know, we had to say, well, the oceans are in crisis. And that's a really shitty place to start off at the table when you're trying to sell somebody a nice fancy dinner, which is the oceans are in crisis. It's all going to hell, except here at my restaurant. So it, uh, it certainly started conversations off on a negative. Um, but that narrative has also shifted to the point now where, you know, sustainable seafood is a, is a category. Now it exists. It, it has function, it has mechanisms to protect it and, uh, regiments of, of management, you know, that are scientifically backed. And so all of a sudden it's now this, it's not this concept that we're fighting to get recognition for. It is now, oh, let's really push forward the best actors because they really are solving for problems that we need answers to. Yet while the broader narrative surrounding sustainable seafood has matured, the importance of experiential understanding remains. Considering we are also looking at this from a culinary perspective, it's not just about sustainability in isolation. My own introduction to Barton exemplified this. When he brought students to the Darling Marine Center a few months back, it wasn't just an aquaculture facilities tour. It was a lesson blending culinary education with sustainability ethos, where the kitchen and the coastline collaborate offering budding chefs a holistic perspective that extends beyond the stove to the very waters that nurture their ingredients. 
So let's delve into a recent endeavor that encapsulates the synthesis of culinary brilliance and sustainable seafood that we're nurturing right here in Maine. In the work that my myself and Katie, my business partner, and I do, we a huge amount of it is education. So whether it's educating around public health aspects of seafood consumption, whether it's uh, educating line cooks around just, hey, how to cook seafood, to educating sort of the top tier of culinary power, uh, you know, really the executive chefs at corporate international levels. Uh, each of these different constituencies need different inputs. And one of the great things that we're able to do here in Maine is we can put so much on display so quickly. And so just recently we hosted uh, a tour that was very similar to other tours we've hosted for multiple groups in the past, but uh, 15 culinary students from central Illinois come out. This is their annual trip that, that they do. Sometimes they go to China, sometimes they go to Italy, they've gone to New York. And this year, uh, my buddy who I came up with, uh, who was the instructor there, uh, he was like, Hey, let's come to Maine. So great. Flew him into Boston. We put him out on the T wharf so they could go out and see the fish auctions and the exchange and all the stuff that was happening there. We put him in the greatest restaurants in Boston for these really amazing dinners. Uh, we, Send them on the freedom tour, you know, the freedom trail. Uh, you know, these were four of the 14, 15 people had never been on an airplane. Most of them had not seen the ocean. So like, wow, what an awesome thing to introduce them to. Like, by the way, sucker punch, Maine. Here you go. Like, here's your intro. There you go, folks. Um, but we put them out on lucky catch boat and then we went to the mussel farm. We went to, you know, we talked about kelp farming. We pulled lobster traps. We got into the kitchen and cooked alongside of each other. They went to Maine grains. They went to community shellfish. They went to Darling and they went to all these incredible places. So much of it was culinary, yes, but a lot of it was really more about community and food systems and uh, how things flow together here in the state. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to to give people what I think we so desperately need around seafood, which is that pathway towards personal narrative. And we've, we've spoken about this just in terms of the, the NIMBY versus YIMBY. Uh, as soon as people adopt that personal narrative of, oh, well, I know where seafood comes from. My own hands have pulled it. I have served this. This is now something that I can say, like I, there's pieces of me invested in this, in this meal, in this serving forth of whatever it is. And that we've found is so key to giving people context for the massive amounts of information around sustainability that flow to them is once they just have that kernel, that nucleus of like, well, this is why seafood matters to me. Then all these bits of information that are coming into you, you, you basically built some formula to understand how to make sense of them. And that's what I think chefs need more than anything is just that, that personal connection to seafood, that trip to a place like Maine can really engender and really create. And what we found is that through educational efforts like this, where it's really just pushing, you know, pushing, <laughs> pushing the child into the tide pool so that they can become enamored with the world and then just sit back and just, you know, absorb the glow that their own interest will, will radiate. So conversing with Barton about the experiences these culinary students underwent during their time in Maine and the East coast led me to think that the intimate encounters they had with seafood might be the key to unraveling the mystery surrounding this protein and its culture methods. 
I think that confidence around understanding seafood comes not only from knowing how to craft a dish, but understanding its origins, the hands that reeled it in, and the waters that it lived in. Kind of like a sea-to-table understanding. Barton drew a parallel that I really liked, which is the connection consumers feel when they handpick their produce from a local farmer's market. It's that tangible link to the land, or I guess in this case, the sea. When you can trace the path from the source to your plate, there's an unparalleled sense of appreciation and confidence. And perhaps that's an important characteristic of aquaculture education, weaving in culinary stories of origin and sustainability. Farmers markets have had such a great impact in terms of opening our eyes to the culinary possibilities of just what vegetables are out there, right? They're from fractal, weird cauliflower things to tomatoes that are green and crunchy even when they're ripe. These are radically different experiences within that vegetable sort of experience, right? But we buy into them. Why? Well, because we think we're really cool if we're going to the farmer's market, because we're part of a community, because we can see the dirt under the fingernails of the farmer that's passing it to us and our dollar passing to them, right? Like we really understand this transactional, but also social civic virtues that are, that are much more sort of a halo over the entire experience. With seafood, we don't have that same sense of just acknowledgement of um, candor around seafood conversations, comfort around seafood conversations. And so we just kind of hold it at arm's length. And because the fishing community and the water farming community is somewhat out of sight, there just isn't that much of that opportunity to build those confidences, uh, what I would call seafood literacy, just hey, do you know how seafood is produced and how to cook it and how to eat it? Just all the way through. Uh, so when you create that personal narrative for things, then as we've spoken about with just experiencing things, knowing people who work on the water, then all of a sudden you have exonerated that guilty before proven innocent aspect of seafood. And so people just approach the seafood counter or seafood on the menu with just like, oh, hey, seafood, cool. That, that could be what's for dinner rather than seafood, wait, it's unsustainable, isn't it? And I've heard all wild farm, you know, all wild fish is, is unsustainable. And I, you know, or blah, 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 blah. And it's just like you end up in these conversations that are so circuitous that we forget to just say, no, seafood, it's what's for dinner. It's what's for dinner. Let's just start there and move forward. And I agree with you when you said, when you're asking this question, uh, seafood's actually the easiest protein to cook. And like the quickest. And the quickest, I cook it in a toaster oven. Chicken, it's got salmonella on it and you have to overcook it just to make it safe, right? Okay, like that's a pretty crappy place to start, right? But seafood, you put it in your toaster oven 275 degrees for 20 minutes and you're done, it's easy. So where that trepidation comes from is, is complicated. The paths away from it, I think are complicated and involved, but uh, Ultimately, I have a lot of faith that seafood trends towards increased consumption are going to continue to rise just because seafood is going to be important to people for various ways, whether it's public health, whether it's women's economic and empowerment issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's just diversity, economic in inclusion. I mean, just there's so many different entry points to seafood now that we're beginning to sort of buoy up the entire category. Barton's insights shed light on a pivotal challenge the distance many of us feel from our seafood sources, a stark contrast to the tangible relationships we've nurtured with many other food producers. 
So what happens when we shift the conversation, when we decide to explore seafood in a different context, emphasizing not just its origins, but its far-reaching implications on health, economy, and our community? By reframing our dialogues and engagements, we can demystify seafood, granting it the same everyday familiarity we reserve for our land-based proteins. It's a tantalizing thought, one that Barton dove right into, offering perspectives that stretch far beyond the dinner plate, highlighting the myriad connections that seafood has with broader societal themes. It's so hard to summarize seafood in such takeaways uh, that don't borrow or outright just usurp existing conversations. Like seafood. It's what's for dinner. That would be a great place to start. There, there's another animal protein that has has that tagline. Um, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but you know, wouldn't it be great if we just like, it's what's for dinner, right? That we just had this starting point of yes, would be a really wonderful thing. I think there's ways to kind of come at you consumers, regardless of, well, depending on where their community is, you know, whether it's public health outcomes that you're interested in. Great. The three S's of public health are don't smoke, wear your seatbelt, eat seafood. It's that important. It's that important in terms of positive public health outcomes with an attendant reduction in red meat consumption and an increased rise in omega-3 rich seafood consumption, right? Wow. Okay, great. Public health, that's a big topic. <laughs> uh, how do we just inject seafood as this positive presence within those conversations? Uh, whether it's brain drain and economic em empowerment and opportunity here in the state of Maine. Like, wow, great. We have our universities. Every one of our universities is actively the leading edge of of not only technology development, but also of just community integration and sort of the civic social virtues and values and the social license aspects around aquaculture. Like, this is a teachable, employable skill that is uniquely applicable in Maine. How many other opportunities do we have like that to really create a brain gain in our state? through not an extractive resource economy, but really a cyclical, recyclic, recircular nutrient economy around food where all of the outcomes are positive. It's like when we begin to start talking about seafood in these realms, in these terms, uh, with these intentions, that is when our affection for seafood and it, all of its pathways towards us grow. After diving deep with Barton into the complexities of seafood, the significance of aquaculture, and the nuances of our food systems, there was still one pressing question lingering in my mind, and that is, if you had to pick one seafood to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? I go with oysters. Every single oyster is different and unique and interesting. Every single oyster requires you to start with intention. Why? Because it's inside of a rock, right? So I have to intend to get it outside of this rock. It's like there's this very participatory, very detailed, very attentive relationship you have with oysters just by virtue of, of the, how they exist. Uh, 
of course, we all know that an oyster from this side of the river to that side of the river is going to be a completely different product. So there's just more there to mine in terms of interest and you know, to captivate not only just the sensors, senses, but also just you know, the intellect of, of what this is. So not to say that any other seafood is, is not as compelling. Just to me, the oyster is, is such a, a beautiful and accessible microcosm. And I, of course, went with mackerel. So mackerel, mackerel is our, our second favorite fish in this house. With Barton's expertise, we unraveled the complexities of our food systems and aquaculture and hopefully gained a fresh perspective on the sector's potential. And also just want to say thanks again to Barton for taking time out of his morning to talk about seafood and aquaculture with me. Yeah, and why is the fish called Baramundi? Baramundi! It sounds like something Count Chocula would say, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Baramundi! Which is delicious fish.